Well, tonight, the first of the um, wisdom or poetical books, uh, which of course comprise of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And tonight, my namesake, Job. And uh, he, he was um, a non Israelite around the time of Abraham, so very early on in history. Um, there are many scholars who think that his book was very possibly written by Moses himself and uh, is possibly even the very first book of the Bible ever written but it's definitely very old, it's, it's around the time of, of Abraham no mention of the law or anything like that at all so it, it, it really is, you know, sort of like right back in early history and um, he lived to the south of where the promised land was eventually to be, so so down Arabia way. Um, but obviously this was, you know, years and years before Israel was going into the land, because this was more around the time of Abraham. And there's a technical word for the, the subject that this book deals with. Uh, the technical word is theodicy. And what that means is um, it deals with the problem of human suffering in the light of the goodness of God. That is the problem that the book struggles with. And particularly the conundrum or the mystery of the suffering of the righteous. So that's the point. In the light of God's goodness, why is it that there is suffering? That, that is, you know, sort of like the question that it addresses. And uh, so we'll, we'll dive in, and uh, first of all, chapters 1 and 2, and um, it establishes right from the outset that Job was a faithful believer. He was faithful to the Lord. He was sold out to the Lord. Um, he was righteous, justified by faith and a follower of the Lord. And that he was blessed in just about every way. I mean, God had blessed him up to the eyeballs. Not just spiritually, but physically as well. And then immediately, we're given... Um, what I've always called a peek behind the cosmic curtain. We get little peaks in Daniel, don't we? We've seen this in the past. And here's a peek behind the cosmic curtain here in the book of Job as well. And what you've got to remember all the way through is that neither Job nor anyone else who appears in his story knew that this was going on in the background. Because this peak we're given behind the cosmic curtain, we actually were taken into the presence of God in heaven. <clears throat> and what happens is that, 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 that God kind of, you know, sort of addresses Satan, who's, you know, sort of up there in heaven with him. And, uh, and basically, in the light of the fact that the world life in the evil one, as the Apostle John puts it, in the light of the fact that obviously sinful man and a sinful world is under the auspices of Satan, and that even in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world, nevertheless, what happens is that God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And, uh, you know, he actually says, you know, where have you been, Satan? And Satan says, well, I've been walking to and fro on the face of the earth. And that's a, an idiom for ownership. What's Satan saying? I own the world. I own everything, God. Huh. That's, that's the kind of idea. And so what God says, and, and it was the Lord who took the initiative in this throughout, what the Lord says to him is, look, have you considered my servant Job? He don't belong to you, does he? He's faithful to me. And what Satan says to him, he says, ah, yes, but, so there's a bit of a meh here, 
he says, but look how blessed he is. You've given him everything. He's blessed up to his eyeballs. He don't love you for you. He loves you because it's his own, in his own best interest too. And can you see that a gauntlet is being thrown down here? That a challenge is being issued to Satan. God is saying, Satan, you don't own everyone. What about my servant Job? And Satan turns around and he says, nah, no chance. You see, he goes on about loving you, but only because you've given him everything. It's self-interest. I own him, really. He's only into you for his own self-interest. And um, so what God then does, he says, right, okay, let's, um, let's test this out, shall we? And he says, Satan, I'm going to give him into your power. You can take away all the blessing I've given him, you can take him away. The only thing is that you can't touch his body. So what God says, right Satan, let's see if what you say is true. I give him into your hands, but I draw a line, you are not to touch him physically. So off goes Satan. And it results in four things. Alright? Firstly, the Sabaeans, who were a race living nearby, they attack and they carry off all his oxen and donkeys and kill all his servants who are tending them. So, I mean, Job, very rich, very blessed in every way, including physically and materially. So here, all his oxen and donkeys are carried off and all his servants who are tending them are killed. The second thing that happens is that all his sheep are killed when fire descends from heaven. So fire descends from heaven and kills all his sheep and the shepherds looking after them. The third thing is that the Chaldeans, another race, all right, they attack, a marauding band of Chaldeans attack, and they steal all his camels and again kill all the attendants who were looking after them. So all Job's prosperity is now gone. But then fourthly, he had seven sons and three daughters. And they were all having a feast together in one house. And there's a great wind which causes the house to collapse and they're killed. Alright? So these are the four things that result from God saying to Satan, alright, I give him into your hands, but I you're not to touch him physically. Now, these things come to Job, boom, 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 boom. He, he's told about his oxen and donkeys. He's told about the camels. He's told about the sheep. And then he's told about his children. Bang, 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 bang. All this bad news comes to him. And the response that he gives to all this calamity that is coming on him, and it is calamity indeed, he has lost all his wealth and he's lost his children. And of course, losing his wealth would pale into insignificance against the fact that he lost his ten children. They're all dead. His response to this was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now that's a righteous upright man. That's faith. That is commitment to the Lord. And the Bible quite specifically tells us 
at this point, lest there be any mistaking that he only said that because it was the right thing to say, the Bible quite specifically tells us at this point, right at, you know, right at the start, that he did not sin by charging God with doing wrong. So the Bible is quite clear about it. His response to all this calamity is sinless. It's a response of submission to God and trust in the Lord. All right. Then we move on to what we can call phase two of our little peek behind the cosmic curtain. And now suddenly we're back in heaven and Satan goes to see the Lord in heaven. And uh, basically God's saying, well, what do you make of that, Satan? That's proof, isn't it? And the response that Satan gives to God is, um, yeah, but he's still got his health, hasn't he? Still healthy. I mean, you know, sort of like if someone's healthy, that's really all they want when it boils down to it. And so he's, he's still going through the motions of being faithful to you because you've blessed him with health. So Satan says, I'm not convinced you haven't won this competition by a mile. He's still got his health. And, um, and of course, the whole point about what's going on here is that if Satan can demonstrate that people only follow the Lord out of self-interest, then any question of God's holiness gets blown out of the water. Because the whole point is that if someone comes to the Lord and is saved, they're given the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, if Satan can demonstrate that people only follow the Lord out of self-interest, then God's holiness is blown out of the water, and so is the whole idea of salvation. And so, you know, the sort of like, what, what hinges on this competition is nothing less than the character and the sovereignty of God himself. Because if God's righteousness is impugned, then God is shown to not be holy. And God has said, Job is following me for myself alone. And Satan is saying, no, he's not. He's following you out of his own self-interest. So if God has proven to be mistaken about Job, then God is shown either to be unrighteous or naive. And of course, either one would destroy his credibility as God. So that is what hinges on this contest. Although, as we're going to see, it was no contest. But nevertheless, this, this is the whole push behind what's going on in heaven. And so what the Lord says to Satan now is he says, okay, right, you can inflict illness on him, but you're not to kill him. All right? So, God says, right, let's, let's have this one out. Let's go to round two now. Yeah, I mean, poor old Job's the football, isn't he? But nevertheless, you know, God says, you know, right, okay, so it's one step further. You can take his health away, but you're not to kill him. And, um, and it's good to see here as well, absolute confirmation, that whatever Satan does to you and I, no matter how dreadful it may seem to be, he's had to go through the Lord's courts first to get you know, permission to do it. So although these dreadful things are happening to Job, Satan can't do a thing except God clears it first. And every temptation, every demonic attack, every time Satan, as it were, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, is up to no good and makes our, our situation difficult, remember, he's had to go to the Lord and say, that's what I'm going to do against them now. He's doing it because he hates us. And the law says, mm, yeah, I can use that. That'd be good for him. Yeah, all right, off you go. Or the law says, no, they couldn't handle that. No way. See, so Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. So what happens now is that um, Job develops 
um, a, you know, sort of like some very nasty diseases of the skin. And uh, there's, there's no doubt at all that he gets leprosy. That's very clear from the text. But um, it also appears from the text, and I'm going now on what the experts tell me, that, um, that, that he also was inflicted with another particularly unpleasant and painful disease, which is called elephantiasis. Now, obviously, the experts get this from reading the text and, you know, sort of like, you know, with their medical, you know, knowledge and that. But elephantiasis, apparently, is a disease that's caused when a particular type of worm proliferates in the body and these worms block up certain blood vessels, the result of which is that you swell up. And so he definitely ends up with leprosy. But it also, he ends up with this other thing as well, and, and, and the doctors say that it looks like it's elephantiasis. But regardless of what it was, he's in a mess. He is now covered from head to toe in painful sores and boils. I mean, he is in a terrible mess. Now, at this point, his wife gets in on the act. And his wife's advice to him is quite simply this. She says, Job, curse God and die. Now, Satan's coming through her. She was not, we don't know whether she was a believer or not, but even if she was, she wasn't a particularly sanctified one, was she? So, so, so Satan is now coming through his wife as well, which is never very helpful, is it? And, uh, but his response to her saying, look, curse God and die, I get it over and done with. All right. His response to that is he says, shall we not accept good from the Lord and not trouble? So what he says is, look, we're happy to receive good things from the Lord, and we say praise the Lord. Well, okay, now I'm receiving bad things, but I'm going to say praise the Lord. He says, whatever the Lord doles out, I receive it. Now, that was his response to it. And again, the Bible specifies, lest we could end up thinking that, well, he's just saying the right things, isn't he? The Bible specifies that up to this point as well, he did not sin with his lips. So what we've got is that Job is now living proof that God can so work in redeemed sinners that they can indeed love and serve him for himself alone. And not just for the material blessings and the salvation that they get from him. So to that extent, the, the competition is clearly 100% being won by the Lord. Job, in this situation, is living proof. Satan has done his worst, and Job is still following the Lord, trusting the Lord, loving the Lord, but receiving all this evil as from the Lord. So that was proof that he loved the Lord for himself alone, and not for any you know, sort of good things that the Lord might have given him. So, to that extent, Job is the battleground and the victory all the way is going to the Lord. But now, something else happens. And what happens now makes his situation and circumstances even worse than they are. He's lost all his material wealth. His children are dead. His wife 
is saying, look, curse God and die, not being very helpful. So that's his family, gone as far as he's concerned. And now he's inflicted with terrible diseases, which have made him an absolute outcast. But now something even worse happens. His friends turn up. But even worse than that, they've turned up to comfort him. And the reason that this is so dreadful is that they're believers and they've come to give him Christian advice. And we're going to see that if his situation was bad at the moment, now it gets even worse. Now, three friends are mentioned. It's a bloke called Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and uh, Zophar the Naamathite. Um, now, he's not named, but there's a fourth bloke who turns up as well, and we're going to see him later, a bloke called Elihu. He was slightly different from these three friends. But these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they're the ones that the, the main book now revolves around, a series of interchanges verbally between Job and these three guys. And, uh, but what happens initially when they turn up? is that they just sit on the ground with him in silence for seven days. Now that was helpful. That was good. They, they were kind, so overwhelmed with his suffering that they, they just, as it were, sat there in silence with him, like, you know, and that, that was great. But the problem was, all right, from chapter three onwards, is that they started talking. If they'd have just stayed silent, things might not have been too bad. But they didn't, did they? So now we move on to chapter 3. And what happens here is that Job, after seven days of just sitting there in silence, you know, with these three friends of his, you know, sort of like sitting there as well, is, 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 is that now Job speaks and he explodes. He absolutely, he can't hold it in anymore and he curses the day of his birth. He doesn't curse God but he curses the day of his birth. He says, I wish I'd never been born, in effect. And he starts to pour it all out. So the fact that he's so upset and so hurt, now it all comes out. He pours it all out to them. And what happens now, all right, from the next chapter, chapter 4, right through to chapter 31, and this is, picture it like a BBC radio play. It's like a script, really, you know, think of it like that as a play, you know, sort of, um, you know, I mean, it's history, but the book is laid out, you know, sort of like a play would be. And what you've got is that you have three cycles of speeches from each of the three friends, uh, although Zophar only has two speeches, all right, but you get three cycles of speeches from the three friends, Zophar just doing two speeches, not three. And each time, Job answers that speech with a speech of its, his own, all right? And that is basically the format that the, um, you know, that, that, that the book takes. And, uh, but it, it will help, before we go into these cycles of speeches, it will just help if I give you a quick breakdown of the subject matter before we actually go into it in detail i.e. you know sort of like where the friends are coming from what the speeches are ultimately all about all right now these three friends Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar they all have one thing in common and what they all have in common is that they all believe that Job is suffering in the way that he is, all this material wealth gone, his family gone, and, and, and all this illness. They believe 
that he is suffering all this because of some sin in his life that he hasn't put right with God and that therefore once he's right with God again then it will all be over alright once he's confessed whatever undealt with sin has brought all this on once he's confessed it it'll all be put to right and he'll receive God's blessings again and he'll be healed etc etc so therefore the theology of these three friends, their doctrine, if you like, their belief, if you like, is if God is just and holy and good, therefore only the wicked are going to suffer. And the righteous are going to be blessed. Therefore, all the years that Job was blessed, he was indeed in ongoing fellowship with God. But now, because of all the trials he's going through, something has come into his life, God has put his finger on something, there's undealt with sin in his life, and all this is coming on him because there's sin he's not putting right. Alright. So, they believe that Job is suffering because he's unfaithful, because he's out of fellowship, and because he's sinning, he's in sin that he's not putting right. Now, all the three friends, all three of them, that is their belief, and that is what they're trying to demonstrate to Job. But they all argue from a slightly different angle. So all of them are arguing the same point. This has come upon you because you're not being faithful to the Lord. This has come upon you because you're out of fellowship. This has come upon you because there's sin in your life that you haven't put right. They all share that belief in common, but they all argue their case from a slightly different angle and I'll show this to you like Eliphaz he argues from a mixture of personal experience and subjective revelation so he's what you call the mega charismatic right um, Bildad argues from tradition so I suppose you might say that he's a bit Anglican right um, Zophar, now Zophar, as we're going to see, he's just a dogmatic legalist. He's, the, he's got the Doc Martens on. He's the guy who's into the, you know, giving people a doctrinal kicking, as we'll see later. Very unfeeling bloke, Zophar. Let's, let's see this. First of all, Eliphaz. If you find chapter 4, we're going to be actually, you know, reading certain, certain verses from Job. But if you find um, chapter 4, and uh, verse 7, first of all, and we'll see the basis of um, Eliphaz's argument, okay? And uh, read, uh, chapter 4, and I'll read verse 7 to 9. Um, he says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they're destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. Now can you see, he's basing his argument there on personal experience. He's saying, this is what I have seen. And he says, my experience is that the righteous prosper and that the wicked, you know, uh, sorry, that the righteous yet yeah, prosper and the wicked have calamity come on them. Therefore this calamity is, uh, you know, kind of because you're out of fellowship. 
So there's his personal experience, but also he argues from personal revelation. He's in the, well, God has told me, you know, I've got this from the Holy Spirit, you know. And uh, if you just go down into verse 12, and, and, and you'll see this. He says, a word was secretly brought to me. My ears called to whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seize me. You see, he's getting trontoed. And made my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. So, can you see, what, what, what his argument is, is he's, he's saying, look, you know, and of course my doctrine must be true because of all this supernatural experience I've had. So, therefore, one might say that he's arguing this on the basis of his own personal experience and subjective revelation, you know, that he's had directly from the Lord, okay? So, to that extent, we can say that he's, he's, he's the raging charismatic, or you might call him the charismatic, is maniac, alright? Now, when we move on to Bildad, alright, he argues from tradition. If you find chapter 8, and we'll see the basis of his argument, chapter 8, and um, verse 8 to 10, this is Bildad, and, uh, and he, he says this, he says, ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? So what he's saying, we've got to go back into church history, haven't we? We've got to go back and we've got to see what our forefathers, they'll tell us. So we'll read what they say, because we don't know anything, do we? So his argument is on traditions. And what he's saying is, I've learned all the teaching of my forefathers, and they have taught me that the righteous are blessed and that the wicked perish. So therefore, Job, can't you see, on the basis of tradition, it's quite clear. Tradition says you must be out of fellowship with God. Right, so he's what you call the high Anglican, you know, apostolic succession, all that kind of stuff, you know. Now, Zophar. Now, if you go to chapter 11, Zophar doesn't so much argue from a particular point of view as just enjoy arguing. Because if you find chapter 11 and verse 5, now, this is Zophar's this is the basis from which he approaches it all. I've said he's the dogmatic legalist. He's very unfeeling. He's the one, he's going to get his Bible out and he's going to bash you over the head until you agree, if only to shut him up. And there are people like that. You end up agreeing with them because it's the only way they're going to stop talking. At least if you agree with them, they go, you know. Well, he's like that. Look at this. This is what he says. I mean, remember, here's Job. He's lost everything. Listen to this. He says, Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. So what he's saying is, look, I'm going to give you a kicking in the name of the Lord, but I just wish he was here in person to do it. You see what I mean? I mean, that's the God he represents. You know, he just wants to speak against Job. So, I mean, the point is that if there's anything around that anyone's, you know, sort of like the possibility of correction, bang, he's there like a rocket. Because that's his thing. You know, sort your life out. That's, that's the kind of bloke he is. So, this is the angle that they're coming from. They're all saying the same thing, that Job must be out of fellowship, all right, but they're just saying it from slightly different angles, different reasons for saying it. And, of course, the point is that we've got to underline now, they were totally and utterly wrong. Their theology 
was incorrect. Their doctrine was false. This idea that if you're right with God, you will by definition be blessed in every way, and if calamity comes upon you, it means you're not right with God. We saw in chapters 1 and 2, in our peak behind the cosmic curtain, we established there that Job is suffering not because he is unfaithful, he is suffering precisely because he is faithful. We saw there that he's not suffering because he's got out of fellowship. We're seeing that he's suffering precisely because he was in fellowship. So the point is, the whole reason for his suffering is that God has said to Satan, look at my servant Job. He is genuinely faithful. He is selflessly faithful. And Satan has said, no he's not. Let me take away all his blessing and he'll turn against you. So Job is suffering because all his blessing has been taken away. But what's he done in regards to the Lord? He stayed faithful. So the point is, Job is suffering in this way because he is faithful. The fact that he's suffering is not indicating that he isn't being faithful. And in his replies to his friends, as they start pouring out all their arguments, in his replies to them, he maintains this unswervingly of himself. He keeps maintaining, you're wrong. I'm not going through this because I'm out of fellowship with God. I'm not aware of anything in my life that has got me out of fellowship with God. You're wrong. And he maintains that unswervingly. And as he does that, he reaches heights of great faith. Some of the most sublime sayings on the lips of any saint comes from, from Job. But defending yourself as he was doing is always a bit of a risky business. And although sublime statements of faith come from his lips, and we've seen them already, haven't we? His response when the calamity starts. But he's defending himself. And although we've seen that he attains to great faith and faithfulness, in his zeal to defend himself, he begins to fall into errors of his own. In fact, three. He falls into three errors, all right. Firstly, in maintaining that there was no undealt with or unconfessed sin in his life, and that that was true, there wasn't, I, he was living in daily confession of sin. So he maintained he was right with God in an ongoing way, and he was absolutely right about that. But in so doing, he ends up emphasising it so much that he ends up virtually making himself out to be sinless. There's a big difference between undealt with sin and sin, isn't there? I hope we haven't got undealt with sin in our lives, but we've all got sin in our lives. He virtually makes out there was none in his life at all. And so self-righteousness pours out of him. Secondly, he maintained his own innocence, and he was right to do it, he was innocent, but he ends up maintaining it so zealously that he ends up virtually making God look guilty. So he ends up maintaining his own innocence almost at the expense where he was at times perhaps ready to believe that God wasn't quite as good as he was. This is always the danger, isn't it, when we defend ourselves. And then thirdly, he did start to get a bit rude with his three friends, as we're going to see. Now, they, they were even ruder to him 
and uh, in, indeed one could say we understand the fact that he got a bit rude here and there but of course it didn't make it right but 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 they are the errors um, that he fell into but of course we've got to keep reminding ourselves before we go on and look at the speeches that his three friends made and his replies we've got to keep reminding ourselves that neither Job nor his friends had any inkling of the goings-on in heaven between God and Satan. So that peak behind the cosmic curtain that we get in chapters 1 and 2, Job and his friends had no idea whatsoever that that was going on. They were completely ignorant of this, these goings-on between God and Satan. And therefore, another theme of this book emerges. And at the end of the day, it's this. The necessity, whatever happens, to just trust the Lord. Because you're not going to understand what's going on half the time, but what does that matter? God understands what's going on. And that's a major theme. Job's faith was... In, in a situation where he didn't have a clue what was happening. And of course, you find out if you trust somebody, not when you know what they're up to, but precisely when you don't know what you're up to, what they're up to. <laughs> so you're gonna find out if you trust the Lord, not when you do think you understand what he's doing, because half the time, even when we do think we understand, half the time we don't, we've got it wrong. But do we trust the Lord when we're completely in the dark? That is where true faith comes out, and that is what we see here in the book of Job. Right, so, with, with, you know, with that lot under our belts, let's, let's actually move into the, um, the speeches. And uh, in, in, in chapters 4 and 5, and we're not going to do this in great detail, I'm just going to kind of give you the gist, fundamentally, of what each speech is actually saying. But uh, in, in chapters 4 and 5, we get Eliphaz... Uh, doing his first speech. So we've got Eliphaz speech number one. So this is Eliphaz. Now this is the beginning his friends are beginning to speak. So Eliphaz's first speech in chapters four and five and basically he rebukes Job for whatever sin it was that he's committed that brought the situation about. So this is a kind of approach, I ain't got a clue what you've done wrong, but you've got to do something wrong, repent. You know, I'm, I mean, this is straight in, it's your fault, repent. See, I don't know what's going on here, but I know it's got to be your fault, repent. So immediately in goes Eliphaz, and of course, I mean, he's got this from the Lord, hasn't he? Because he's had revelations and he's seen all this before. So there's no arguing with Eliphaz, you know, he, he's a counsellor. And, you know, so he's straight, straight in there with, with Joe. And, and, and it's then that he describes this awesome spiritual experience he had that we read earlier. And, um, you know, so I mean, sort of ba basically he's saying, well, you're wrong, you've got to repent. And, well, I've had this experience and I've had that experience and I, I got Toronto. And this, so what I say must be right because this is coming from the Holy Spirit. You see, that is his argument. That is his argument. So, you know, he, he's saying, Job, accept what I say is right because of my spiritual experience. And, um, you know, but remember that, that, that Eliphaz is totally wrong, you know, and a man can make all the claims he likes in the world. You know, God has told me, the Holy Spirit has told me, oh, Jesus appeared and told me. But if it goes against the word of God, it's wrong, period, full stop. And Eliphaz was wrong. 
he was 100% wrong. And in chapter 6 and 7, you get Job's reply to what he says. And uh, Job expresses a great disappointment that Eliphaz had been unsympathetic. You know, he sort of says, well, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that you couldn't have taken a more gentle, maybe a more, sim you know. I mean, here's a bloke in the dust, literally. And Eliphaz his first words, literally, repent, this is your fault. This is not compassion. <laughs> this, this, this is not the love of the Lord, even though Eliphaz was claiming to be full of the Lord, you know. And so Job expresses a disappointment that Eliphaz couldn't have been a bit more uh, sympathetic and, and perhaps a little bit more helpful. And, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, in regards to this, we can say at this point that Job's response is perfectly reasonable. And, uh, you know, and, and Job tells Eliphaz that he is in utter, complete despair and that he wants to die. You know, he's virtually feeling suicidal because he can't handle the calamities that have come over him. And, um, you know, and, and, and then in, in, in talking to Eliphaz, he, he begins to verbalise this struggle, you know, that, 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 that now he begins to question, well, why has God put me through this? <coughs> I'm not buying this line that it's because I'm out of fellowship, because I know I'm in fellowship. But he starts to verbalise his own struggle. Why is it that the Lord is doing this to me? Then in chapter 8, we move on to Bildad. So now Bildad, friend number two, and uh, he makes his first speech. And um, he immediately confirmed the position that Eliphaz had taken, that Job was suffering because he'd sinned. All right, so he immediately says, I agree with Eliphaz, let's get that straight from the word go. This is your fault, Job, you've got to repent, all right? And, uh, you know, but, 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 but then explains to Job that he believes what Eliphaz believes, not on the basis of subjective revelation, but because of his forefathers, because of the traditions of the faith, as it were, like reading the wise men of the faith through, through history. So he says, you know, I agree with Eliphaz and, you know, because it's what tradition teaches us, you know. And, um, you know, so, so although it's from a different site, different point of view, he simply gives Job exactly the same kicking that Eliphaz had. You know, has so just in his own words, Job gets a going over now from him. So then Bildad finishes his speech, and in chapters nine and ten, Job replies to him, and again he protests that he's innocent of any unconfessed sin, and uh, he maintains quite correctly that the faithful do go through trials and sufferings. I mean, you know, sort of um, remember Eliphaz has said, now my experience is that I've never seen it. And now Job is saying in reply to Bildad, who's agreed with Eliphaz, he says, well, I don't care whether you've seen it or not. I have. And it's unarguable that there are times when the righteous go through trials. So he says, I'm going through trials, but it's not because I'm out of fellowship, as you say. And he, at this point, he confesses his weakness. He admits that he's just a sinful man. He confesses his weakness and that this is all too much for him. And what he does is that he cries out for a mediator between him and the Lord. Now, if you just look at, at, at verse, chapter 9 and uh, verse 32, because these are very famous words, 
Um, Job says, he is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, to someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, that I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands, I cannot. Now, obviously, the one who eventually put his hand on, on, on man and God, to do that, you've got to be God and man. Obviously, here, this was ultimately fulfilled in, in, in Jesus dying on the cross for us, mediating. You know, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But more immediately, in his situation, uh, we'll actually find out that uh, Elihu, who's going to step in later on in the story, Elihu becomes the answer to his prayer for a mediator, someone to step in and sort the mess out for him. And then... Um, still in reply to Bildad, he says that he's looking forward to death, he wants to die, and that he wishes again that he'd never been born. So now we, we move on to friend number three, Zophar, and uh, for his first speech. And um, this is in chapter 11, and all we can say here is that if, um, if Eliphaz and Bildad have already given him a kicking, um, then Zophar, who is our legalist, our unfeeling, black and white, no shades of grey legalist, works him over with a mallet in one hand and a meat cleaver in the other. Because he piles in, you know, and uh, we've already, you know, sort of seen the first, haven't we, when it says, oh, I wish, I wish God was here doing this to you as well, you know, not, not just me. I mean, let's just, 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 you know, sort of look at chapter 11 again. And, um, you know, this is Zophar, all right, chapter 11, and... First of all, verse 2 and 3. Now, you know, th these are his first words to him. He says, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? I mean, that, that, that is his attitude. I mean, you know, he's rebuking Job for talking too much. That's a very poetic way of saying, Job, just shut up, will you, and listen. We don't want to hear what you say. You know, every, everything you're saying is wrong because he's heard Job disagree with the other two. And of course, if he disagrees with them, he disagrees with Zophar. And legalists and people like Zophar don't like to be disagreed with. So he fundamentally starts off, you know, by telling him to, to shut up. And, um, and then in verse 6, um, you know, sort of like he says, Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin." And what he's saying there is he says, look, these sufferings, they're less than you deserve. You actually deserve more than this. You're getting off lightly, you are. So what he's saying, you know, he says, you're, you're maintaining that, um, you know, that you're, you're suffering all this because you're right with God. He says, well, I'm telling you, you're suffering all this because you're not right with God. And I'll tell you something more. He says, God isn't punishing you as much as you deserve. You deserve worse than this, mate. I mean, you know, that, that is his attitude. And, uh, you know, and then just once more, you know, sort of like we saw this earlier, he says, oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. You know, sort of like saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a verbal working over, but oh, I wish God was here doing it. I wish you could get this straight from God. So a very, very, very hard, very kind of, um, you know, sort of like, um, you know, sort of like unhelpful attitude. And, um, but... But he does at least end his first speech by, by saying, you know, but, but of course if you repent, you'll be happy again. 
you see. You know, so, I mean, this, this bloke isn't all deaf, as it were. But the point is, he's saying to Job, look, if you repent, you'll be happy again. As we've seen, there wasn't anything for Job to repent of. It's precisely because he's right with God he's going through all this. So, um, you know, sort of Zophar being as unhelpful as the rest, but even, even nastier, e e even less feeling, even less compassionate. And uh, anyway, so, so, so that's, that's speech number one from, from Zophar. So, Zophar, so good. <laughs> right, now in uh, chapters 12 to 14, Job responds to him. And... Um, now, this is three chapters worth now, so Job's replies are getting a bit longer now. And uh, he's, he's fraying at the edges a bit. <laughs> and sometimes when we fray at the edges, we, um, what you can, if you can hurl an insult at someone in five words, it's far more effective to use 15, isn't it, if you're fraying at the edges a bit. And uh, so, so Job replies to, to, to Zophar. And uh, if you just look at... Um, verse 1 of chapter 12 doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you so we have the merest hint <laughs> of sarcasm <laughs> creature you know creeping in now i mean that is a pure sarcasm for, from job i mean not that i mean it's quite understandable you know i mean to my mind job remains being a saint here but nevertheless we are seeing you know, that if Job had any illusions that he was beyond sin, that, that, that now these are going to be dashed, aren't they? And um, in chapter 13 and, and verse 4, um, he, he tells them that they were worthless physicians and, um, and, and that he tells them that they're hindering him, that they're not helping. And uh, he reiterates his plight, the mess that he's in. He goes, can't you see what I'm going through? But, but then he... he he, he dwells on the greatness of God, saying, but, but, but regardless of what I'm going through, God is great, God is good, and, and he gives praise to God. And, and, and then in chapter 13 and verse 15, one of these great, where he soars to, to such heights of faith, and that is, as you know, it's one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible, and that is where Job says, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. That's faith. That's faith. I mean, Job is saying, look, yeah, he's slaying me. It looks, he's treating me more worse than my worst enemy would. But he says he's great and he's good and he's holy and I trust him. He knows what he's doing. Oh, that is, that is, that is faith. But then, before he's finished this reply, he then, kind of having soared up into the heavens, though he's slain me, yet will I trust him. He then goes down, right down into, you know, a great valley of despair. And, and, and then he gives sort of like, you know, a, a little mini speech within a speech that, that he even doubted whether there was going to be life after death. And that was he kidding himself with his faith anyway? And, and then there's a rather morbid few sentences on the general terrible condition of mankind. So we can really see that with these trials, it's beginning to introduce an element of instability, that he's soaring very high, but he's dropping very low. But again, I say very understandable. He's doing so well, it's unbelievable. Now, in chapter 15, we move on to the second cycle of speeches. And uh, chapter 15 is uh, Eliphaz, his speech number two. And um, 
he gets a bit nasty now. Let's uh, let's just read. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's just read um, the first couple of verses. Eliphaz says, "Would a man answer with empty notions, or fill his belly with a hot east wind? Would he argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value?" but you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Now that's really nasty, because that's, that's Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Because the point is, Job is representing God's truth. And Eliphaz says that your speech is crafty. You know, you're, you're misrepresenting God. And he wasn't. It was Eliphaz who was misrepresenting God. And so that's, that's a kind of a bit, you know, bit, you know, bit low that and um, you know and, and then in, in, in verse 11 he says are God's consolations not enough for you he's saying look we're here to help <laughs> doesn't that help <laughs> Job's saying no <laughs> and he says words spoken gently to you well there aren't any words being spoken gently to Job are there and he says why has your heart carried you away why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth now here alright Eliphaz is saying we're dealing so gently with you, and yet you're getting angry against God. This proves you're out of fellowship. But of course, the truth of the matter is, Job's not getting angry against God. There haven't been any gentle words spoken to him. They've ripped him to shreds. He's getting angry with them, which is a bit different. So that, this is really below-the-belt stuff. This is really, really nasty, all right? And, um, you know, and Eliphaz goes on and gives a... A, a graphic description of the wicked and their end. You know, what happens in eternity to the wicked and stuff like that. And of course, you know, the, the inferences. And of course, Job, if you don't sort yourself out, this is what you've got coming in eternity. So it's, it's, all, it's, it's all getting very heavy. And in chapter 16 to 17, Job replies. And um, again, he's, he's kind of, um, he's fraying a bit. He says, I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? So now he's telling them to shut up. So they're telling him to shut up. He's telling them to shut up. And in between this slanging match of shut up, no, you shut up, no, you shut up, I'm not going to shut you shut up, they're, they're getting across their arguments. And, uh, you know, but all the time, you've got to keep bearing in mind what Job is going through. This isn't ideology as far as Job is concerned. The tragedy was, as far as his friends were concerned, it was ideology. It was doctrine to them. It wasn't to Job. He was the one going through it. You know, it, it was the reputation of the Lord that mattered to Job. The three friends, they just cared about their doctrine. I warn you, Christians can be like that. We can be like that. No way. No way does doctrine come before people. Obviously, doctrine's got to be true, but can you see, even with true doctrine, one can be more for the truth than for the people that the truth is there to set free. And this is exactly what the three friends like. They're believers, remember, but they're, they're the, worst, the worst possible type. And, um, you know, so, so, so Job, you know, he, he then goes on to say, in effect, well, how would you like it? If, uh, you know, sort of like the way you're treating me, how would you like it if people, um, you know, sort of like treated them like that? And, uh, you know, and sort of like he, 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 he asks him how, you know, how he can be given hope. He says, well, you know, where is my hope going to come from? Um, okay, you know, look, 
I know that God's doing this for a good purpose. I know that I've still got a future. And somewhere in all this, I, I hope in the Lord. You know, so a, again, a, a real kind of, you know, rising of, of his faith there. Then in chapter 18, Bildad comes in with his speech number two. And um, he's getting more and more cross with Job. And um, read chapter 18 with an appropriate tone of voice and you'll see what I mean. And, uh, and, 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 and he ends... He ends his second speech by, by trying to frighten Job into repenting with a kind of a, a graphic description of, of the ultimate end of the wicked. And, um, you know, sort of like, you know, he, you know, for instance, talking about the wicked, he says, uh, he has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. Now, that's, that's pointed, that is, because Joe's family has been killed. And then he goes on to say, men of the West are appalled at his fate, men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. And, and, and just trying to pound him now into repenting and of course as we've seen Job hasn't got anything to repent of not in the way that these guys are saying that he has so you know Bildad is getting crosser and crosser with him and and stepping up the graphic language and of course you know just trying to frighten him into repenting and in chapter 19 Job replies to him and uh, you can you can tell that that this this Thing, you know that Bildad has just done this trying to frighten him into repentance you can see in chapter 19 now that that Job has really been crushed by what he said um, if we just just read verse um, you know verse 2 to 6 Job replied how long will you torment me and crush me with your words he's saying you're killing me you're destroying me and, and that Job is disoriented. He says, ten times now you've reproached me, shamelessly, shamelessly you attack me. If it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. And I mean, Job is contradicting himself now. He says, well, okay, if I am wrong, what's it got to do with you? It's my problem, but I'm not wrong, but God's putting his net around. And Job is completely confused now that that, that that Bildad has frightened him so much that now you know sort of Job is you know is getting really upset and at this point he blames God you know and he, he starts to say that this is your fault Lord which there's a sense in which it was it was a look it's that the Lord set all this emotion but now you know Job just begins to make God out to be a little bit on the horrible side and uh, you know, kind of like he 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 cries out, he he cries out for pity, and and and, and he, he starts to see the Lord as being horrible, and that frightens him even more. But then, at the end of this reply, in verses 25 to 27, he soars back. He gathers himself. He realizes what's happening—that Satan's muddling him and deceiving him—and then he soars back up. Uh, you know, with, with a statement of true faith. Because in verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So he recovers himself and his faith. And we can see here, it's remarkable, one of the earliest books in the Bible, and yet Job understood all about the second coming, that his Redeemer was going to stand on the earth, and that he was going to see him with his own eyes, even after his body had been destroyed. So he understood about the resurrection body as well. 
amazing the revelation that these believers had in the Old Testament, far more than you'd actually think that they did have. And so he catches himself and he, he soars back up into the heights. And, and so although, you know, sort of like, you know, what Bildad had just said to him so disoriented and frightened him, nevertheless he's regained himself, he's got his peace back and, and he's back kind of, you know, on top now. And uh, then Zophar now comes in with his second speech, which is actually his last one, because he only gets two, the others get three. And uh, again, he, he, he classifies Job with the unfaithful and the wicked, and he paints lurid descriptions of, you know, the fate that awaits them and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and sort of like just informs Job of the ultimate terrors that are going to overcome him because of his unfaithfulness to God. So on that point, thankfully, Zophar bows out. But Job replies to him in chapter 21, and uh, in, in verse 3, and Job is back, he's composed himself again, and uh, he moves back into um, what you might call sarcastic mode, and he says, bear with me while I speak, and after I've spoken, mock on. You know, he says, well, look, hang on, let me just have my say, and then when I finish, you can keep mocking me, you, you, you can keep going at me if you like. So, you know, I mean, again, he's frying a bit, and, uh, and, and, and he agrees uh, with so far. He says, I, I, I agree with you that the wicked will eventually and ultimately suffer. You know, that, there's no question about that. He says, I agree with that. But nevertheless, it is true that in this life, he says, never mind the life to come, in this life it remains true that often the wicked prosper. And Job, he stands by that. He won't budge on that. But of course it's true. And then in verse 34, he says, so how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. And he says, what you are telling me is absolute nonsense. I mean, not only does it go against what we know of the Word of God, but it goes against what we see with our own eyes. Of course the wicked prosper. And it is ridiculous, this argument you're putting forward, that if, you're being, if, 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 if things are going well with you, you're right with God. If things are going badly, you're not right with God. God's, you know, Job is saying that is patently ridiculous. It is absolute nonsense. And uh, then in chapter 22 we move on to the final cycle of uh, speeches and um, this is Eliphaz he gets his last last say now and um, and he concludes that Job is one of the worst sinners going and that he reckons that there's every possibility that the actual sins that have got Job into this mess are greed cruelty and hypocrisy the list ends there but he just gives him enough to be getting on with, and then urges him to repent. And, uh, and again, if we just, um, just look at uh, ver verse 21, um, and uh, he, he, he says, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth, lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove wickedness, far from your tent. Now that's subtle, because of course, if disaster has come upon you because you're out of fellowship with God, and of course that is a possibility, then of course if you repent, you'll be restored. But the point is, Job isn't, this disaster hasn't come on him because of sin. It's come on him because he's faithful, so there's nothing for him to repent of. So again, absolutely hopeless, no no, no help at all. It sounds good, it's all good doctrine, but I mean, you know, 
there are sort of like there are different medicines for different illnesses and if you've got illness A that needs medicine B alright then medicine D might be a very good medicine but if you give it to someone who's not suffering from the disease it's meant to cure it might kill them and that is what they're doing they're, they're, they're one issue believers, they're one answer believers. I mean, it's like today you get people, the answer to everything, oh, it's demons, cast your demons out, you'll be all right. Or you get other people, oh, you know, the problem here, oh, yes, it's things that happened to you in childhood. Or some people, oh, yes, this is sin you've got to repent of. Can you see, they've, they've got one answer for everything without realising that life isn't like that. There are different medicines for different conditions. And to be a Christian with just one medicine to give to everyone is really unhelpful. But that is what these guys were very much like. And then in chapter 23 and 24, Job replies to him. Again, he maintains that he's innocent of the charges. And he was. He wasn't guilty of those sins. And he says that he wasn't in rebellion against the Lord, which, of course, he wasn't. Um, he, he, he gets confused again. Um, he kind of wavers between faith and unbelief. Um, I mean, if you look at chapter 23 and verse 10, he says, but God knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Well, there's faith again. And that actually is the key verse in the whole of the book of Job, as, as we'll see later on. So there's faith, all right? But if you go a few verses later and find chapter 24 and, um, and verse 1, he says, that, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? So there there's kind of like, you know, unbelief again, getting all lost, you know, sort of like, you know, disparaging the Lord. So again, he's, you know, he's wavering a bit. And, uh, but, but he then goes on and he ends this, this reply uh, by, uh, you know, giving further proof that, you know, that the wicked you know, eventually suffer, but that nevertheless in this life often they prosper. And he just continues to say, look, look at the evidence of your own eyes, you know. And uh, then in chapter 25, we have the last speech from Bildad. And this is the last of these speeches because Zophar only had two. And in chapter 25, Bildad's last speech uh, it's very, very short, it's just five verses, so at last he's running out of things to say. And uh, he, 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 he simply declares God to be great, and that man is a worm and a maggot in comparison. Which I suppose viewed one way is helpful, as it might have been nice if he'd added about the image of God just to, you know, get the balance back a bit. But, you know, I mean, this was, this was the way his mind worked. Bless him. And, uh, and then in chapters 26 through to 31, uh, Job replies to him. So six chapters, six chapters answers five verses, but Job still had quite a lot to say. And, um, and basically in six chapters he dismisses their arguments again and he describes God's greatness. So he's always upholding the righteousness of the Lord. And, uh, and then, then follows five chapters of self-pity and self-righteousness, which you've got to read them, you know, to believe them, but you've got to keep understanding the situation he was in, you know, but, but he does, he, he, he just absolutely wallows in it, which, I mean, all, I shudder to think what I'd be doing in this situation, I mean, I'm just reporting that at this point he does sink in a mire of self-pity and self-righteousness, and what he does is that he ends this particular little peroration with an invitation to either God or, or man, 
if anyone would like to step forward and prove him unrighteous, he will prove that they're wrong. And he says, and you know, virtually, Lord, if you want to do it, I'll take you on as well. So yeah, it's just a little, little bit of defiance beginning to, to, to creep in here. Now, um, in chapter 32 and, and verse 1, we, we, we have kind of like Job's situation summed up, all right? So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they were wrong in what they were saying, but Job has started to get a little bit self-righteous, all right? But uh, that's in chapter 32. But by chapter 40, and then again in chapter 42, we're going to see that Job is groveling in the dust, admitting how sinful and unworthy he is. And it's what happens next that tells us why. What it is that takes Job from being very self-righteous now to humbling himself in the dust. And it's what happens in chapters 32 to 37. So let's, let's have a look, all right? Well, it's more than that, you know, it's, it's what happens in chapters 32 right through to 39, in fact. And, uh, but uh, in, in chapters 32 to 37, you get this other bloke that I told you about, Elihu. And uh, this bloke, he hadn't said a word, he'd been listening in, but he, he hadn't spoken yet. And he really becomes the mediator between Job and the Lord um, that, 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 God, you know, that Job had cried out for back in chapter 9. Because he is actually able now to step in and to, to, to give Job and the three friends a little bit of understanding as to what exactly is going on. And he knew that the three friends were wrong in what they were saying. Elihu knew that. He knew that they were wrong. Um, that their insistence that Job was suffering because of his sin, he knew that that was completely wrong. But he also knew that Job was wrong to be defending himself so vehemently and to be coming over as so self-righteous. And Elihu's concern is that Job was so concerned with his own self-righteousness that he was virtually making God out to be less than holy, almost as if he was better than God. So the position is, the three friends are maintaining that Job is suffering because he sinned. Elihu comes in and says, no, it's completely wrong. But he says, Job, now you're sinning because you're suffering. Now can you see the difference? The three friends said, you're suffering because you've sinned. And Elihu says, no, that's wrong. But he says, Job, because of your suffering, now you're sinning. Or you're sinning in your suffering. You're not suffering because you've sinned, but now you're sinning in your suffering. And this was the angle that uh, Elihu um, came in from. And he said, look, can't you see that one of the reasons that the Lord is doing this is to, to deal with you and to wean you away like from sin and self. So that what you said earlier about being tested and refined and you're going to come forth like gold, he says that's part of what God is doing here. It's not that you've got specific sins in your life that you haven't put right. He says, but Job, can't you see that God is also using this to sanctify you further? 
to rid you of the self-righteousness and to give you more and more understanding of yourself, i.e. reducing you to nothing. This was the, you know, the, the angle that Elihu came in on. And, uh, but remember that none of them, including Elihu, knew anything about what was going on behind the cosmic curtain. They didn't know anything about this, uh, you know, this, this kind of contest between God and Satan. But nevertheless, Elihu is saying, yeah, but Job, you've got to understand that God is dealing with you in this. He's doing a work to sanctify you further. And it was what Elihu said to Job in those chapters that prepared Job to hear what God is going to say to him because now we get some speeches from God himself and Job replies to them. And uh, in, in chapter 38 through to the beginning of chapter 40 you get God's speech number one. And, um, and what God now says to Job is that, you know, he, he, he questions Job about divine omnipotence, about the fact that, look, Job, I can do anything, and uh, points out that it's, it's quite futile for a mere man to be trying to understand God's ways fully anyway. And uh, if you just look at, uh, you know, verse 38 and uh, verse 2, and, uh, you know, God says... Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And of course, at the end of the day, our words about God are words without knowledge, and we're darkening his counsel. When we start trying to understand everything, it's, it's absolutely futile. And, um, and God raises another point in verse 3, and he says to Job, Look, brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Etc, etc, etc. Now, there's no answer to that, is there? I mean, when God says, well, look, you know, hang on, where were you when I created the universe? So, you know, this is God answering Job's attempt to try and understand too much. And then uh, in chapter 40 and verses 3 to 5, very short, Job replies, and, uh, you know, but perhaps we'll, we'll just read that. Um, in, verses, in verse 2, God has said to, uh, you know, the Lord said, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So he says, look, you've had accusations against me, Job, let's hear them. And, uh, and what, what Job says is he says, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So Job is beginning to get the point now. All right, He's just beginning to, to, to realise his, his place. And uh, then in uh, chapter 40, still in verses 6 to 41, you get God's second speech. And uh, Job is invited to, care him, to, to, to compare himself with the Lord and to assess whether he's as powerful um, or whether he's as glorious. And Job kind of stands there with not very much to say. And, and of course, he's absolutely humbled into nothingness. Uh, but then he replies in chapter 42 for six verses. And, um, and basically, what we've got here is, 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 is the answer, the, the end of the matter. And it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things, no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me. Now go down into verse 5. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now can you see, he's been brought to nothing. 
a greater revelation of the Lord and of his own nothingness, i.e. he's being sanctified, all right. He's in a much better assessment of one, the Lord, and two, himself. You remember John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And this is what has been happening with Job. And uh, then, still in chapter 42, verse 7 to 9, the Lord confirms that Job was right and that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were wrong. And, um, and so he says to them, look, go to Job, admit you were wrong and he'll pray for you and I'll forgive you. So the Lord vindicates Job's theology, that he was suffering because he was faithful. All right. So the friends are shown to be wrong. And, um, and then what happens is that the, 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 the trials end and the Lord gives him twice as much as he had before. He lived for 140 years more, and uh, he, he, he had three daughters, Jemima Keziah and Karen Hapak, and they were the three most beautiful women in the then known world. And he also had seven sons, seven more sons. So that's the same number of children that he started off with. So after the trials, he was restored, um, and, and then some, and then some. So therefore, in summing up, really, what the book of Job, what God has done, did, in this man's life. Summing it up, we've got to say, Job wasn't suffering because he'd sinned and was out of fellowship or unfaithful to the Lord. It was the exact opposite. He was suffering because he was faithful. He was suffering as part of unknown to him spiritual warfare in the heavenly places against Satan. He was being used in spiritual warfare by God as proof that redeemed sinners can genuinely love God for himself alone and not just for what God gives them. So therefore, this idea that his three friends had, that he was suffering because he was out of fellowship with God, they were utterly and totally wrong throughout. Alright? Although some of, much of what they said was biblical, it was applied wrongly, and therefore became completely false. Alright? So, his three friends were wrong. He was actually, because he was faithful to the Lord, he was being used as a demonstration to Satan and to the principalities and powers. A demonstration that he loved the Lord for himself alone and not for mercenary reasons. So therefore, Job was the means whereby God was vindicated in Satan's eyes over the idea that Satan says, well, your people, they only follow you because of what they get out of it. And God proved by using Job that Satan was wrong in regards to that. But remember, none of the people involved in the story knew that. They didn't have a clue. And that's where faith comes in. So often we don't either. But Elihu steps in to prepare the way for God to speak to Job. And Elihu steps in and he shows that even though it's true that Job wasn't suffering because he was sinning, he tells him that nevertheless he was sinning in his suffering. Now, underline that in your hearts, that's a very important point. He wasn't suffering because of sin, but he was sinning in his suffering. Can you see that? There are trials that you go through and you might think, now indeed, there can be undealt with sin in our lives and God brings trials on us to make us repent of that sin. Alright? Yes, that can happen. Of course it can. Alright? 
But the point is, you can be going through trials that aren't because of sin in your life, but when the trials come on, you can be sinning in the trials. And Elihu says, Job, can't you see that that is what you're doing? And therefore, this is all part of the sanctifying process. Because of the pressure that God's got you under, Job, all this sin that wasn't bubbling out before is bubbling out now. And God's using it to refine you further. You said it yourself, Job. You said that when, you know, that when the test is over, I will come forth as gold. I will be refined. All right. And, of course, the book also establishes that there is so much that believers go through that you, you can't hope to necessarily understand. There are times when what we go through, the Lord gives us understanding, and that's fair enough. But any idea that we can understand at all times everything we're going through, I mean, indeed, there are some of a charismatic persuasion who believe that. They have their hotline to God, so they think. And of course, they, you know, God seems to be giving them a running commentary day by day of what he's doing in their lives. Well, I mean, believe you me, that's sheer illusion. It is true that God can, anytime he wants and does, give us certain understandings about certain things we're going through. But any idea that we can understand everything that happens is ridiculous. But the Lord understands everything that's happening. And because he does, we can trust him. It doesn't matter if you don't know. It doesn't matter if I don't know. The Lord knows, and that's all that matters. He's the one who understands everything. So therefore, I mean, you know, sort of like somebody said to me once, what you knew to be true in the, in the light, don't doubt in the dark. And the point is that often the Lord turns the lights out and we're completely in the dark. And that is when we learn to trust him. And of course you can begin to see what this book does with, um, you know, sort of like the elements in uh, some, some sections of the church where you get this thing about, you know, that sort of like, if you're ill, well, claim your healing. I mean, how, how could Job have claimed his healing? God had specifically said to Satan, you can make him sick. So of what good would it have been for anyone to lay hands on Job? But there are some sections of the church who say all you've got to do is have faith and you'll be healed. Well, it wouldn't have worked with Job, would it? It was God doing it to him. And so, you know, the elements, you know, like the name it and claim it, faith teachings, or the blab it and grab it, or whatever, you know, that, that, that if you're going through hard times, well, that's Satan attacking, come against Satan, claim your birthright and the blessings will descend again. Well, indeed, ultimately they will, if not down here when you get to glory. But can you see what a mockery this book makes of any teachings like that? As if somehow, you know, the inheritance of the believer is, is power and success and prosperity and health all the way down the line, and that anything to the contrary is merely Satan attacking. Well, of course, you just, you, you just pray against him and send him packing, and all the prosperity and blah, blah, blah flows back. Now, if you're ill, the Lord may well heal you. We're not saying miracles don't happen. Disaster might come on you, and in answer to prayer, God removes it. Yes, 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 it might. But it might not. This book just refutes all this silly faith teaching, you know, just name it and claim it, almost as if it's up to us what should happen to us. So therefore, that whole kind of faith teaching is completely refuted by this book. So let's, let's just sum up with four quick points. Why do the righteous suffer? Number one, it might be because of sin. 
right? The Corinthians, they were suffering because of sin. Some of them were dying. And if they, and all they had to do was repent of their sin and that suffering would have been removed. They'd have been healed. So, you can suffer because of sin. But, that's not necessarily the case and it wasn't the case with Job. You can suffer, secondly, um, in order to be refined and sanctified. Because difficulties reduce us to nothing. They put us in our place. They make us realise that we've heard about the Lord with the hearing of our ear, but now we've seen him and we humble ourselves in dust and ashes. We get a true assessment of ourselves. Thirdly, we suffer as an unseen part of spiritual warfare, and anyone who claims to know what's going on behind the cosmic curtain in detail is kidding themselves. Don't believe them. Lord knows, that's all that matters. And then fourthly, why do we suffer? Ultimately, it's a great mystery, and we'll never know. But it doesn't matter. Because if God is in control, we don't need to know everything and we can afford to let God be God. So, there you have it, Job in one talk. We'll leave it there.